So Malachi chapter 4 and then Luke chapter 1, this is God's holy word. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And you will trample down the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave to him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And then Luke chapter 1 at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. This morning, we considered these verses from Luke chapter 1, and we looked at some general truths and principles that arise out of them. Uh, the gift, the grace of children, the joy of that, the need that they have of the grace of God, the saving grace of God, and that God is the giver of that grace. But this afternoon, we're going to consider with God's help, what Luke writes about John, this John specifically, the record of what the angel told Zechariah about his son. His parents would be exceedingly glad about his birth. Many would rejoice at his birth, but not all. Not all would come to rejoice in the giving of John. Like Jesus after him, Luke 2, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. It's going to be true of John as well. Elizabeth could say, his mother, the Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people, and she rejoiced exceedingly at his birth. But if she lived long enough, and we don't know, but if she lived long enough, a sword will pierce her own soul too. 
as we read in Luke 2.35 with respect to Mary. But what do we learn here about John's life and ministry in particular? We read that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the end of verse 15. Filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth or literally from the womb. And again, we wouldn't know that. We couldn't know that apart from special revelation. It reminds us of similar words to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. We consider just a little bit this morning of the profound and the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit, even in the very, very young. The Spirit is like the wind, Jesus said in John 3. Who knows how the Spirit of God is and might be working in our own children and from how young he might be working. It's all very mysterious in one way, but also very encouraging in another way, that the Holy Spirit can be at work in those that we might think that could never be. Whether it's the very young or those who have different uh, special needs and, and difficulties and handicaps mentally, the Lord is able to work in their hearts and lives. Now, in John's case in particular, related to this working of the Spirit, it comes just before that mentioning that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, is this prophecy or prescription, this command, that he was not to take wine or other fermented drink but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Many have wondered whether John was a Nazarite. There are Nazarite vows that are mentioned in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. During the entire period of their vow, no razor may be used on their head. This must be until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord. The Nazarite must not go near a dead body. So certainly more than just abstaining from uh, the fruit of the vine. And so those things aren't mentioned. We don't know John was a Nazarite. If so, he was a Nazarite for life because this has no time limit on it. But what seems more clear is that his behavior, his ministry, in which he would be engaged, was not something produced by something external, but by something internal. It was not generated by wine, but by the Spirit. He must not take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the point. We think of Pentecost. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. And Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. There would be no possible mistaking with John because of this prohibition in his life. The courage that he would have as a prophet of God would not be liquid courage. You heard that saying? Liquid courage. Courage from a bottle. 
No, it would be spiritual courage generated by the Spirit of God. Friends, the Bible does not forbid in general alcohol, but for us all, we do read in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What is going to control your life? Is it something that you're going to put into your body? It's going to dominate your thinking and your speaking and your behavior? Or is that privilege and that blessing and that safeguard going to be given to the Holy Spirit of God? That the Holy Spirit would control your life. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. And we need the Spirit, friends, to be at work in us. In us and those to whom we speak, those to whom we minister, The Puritan theologian John Owen said, without the Holy Spirit, we may as well burn our Bibles. That was his over-emphatic way of saying how much the Holy Spirit is necessary. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, we read, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, not in words only, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. When the Holy, when the Word of God comes with power and deep conviction, what's right in the center? The Holy Spirit. That explains why two people can sit under the same preaching of the Word of God. And one can be moved and the other can be left cold. One can be saved, and the other remain lost. It's not because one is smarter, or better, or has given more to the offering, or served more years at the food bank, or whatever it is. It's this, the gracious work of the sovereign Holy Spirit of God. There are so many errors that have arisen in the history of the church, in the lives of the people of God, when the ministry, the essential ministry of the Holy Spirit is forgotten or rejected. You are reduced then either to a mere human attempt at salvation or to some kind of priestcraft and sacramentalism Tomorrow is the anniversary again of the Protestant Reformation, at least that Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses and and the great solas, the alones, the Reformation. Scripture alone, sola scriptura, faith alone, justification by faith alone, by grace alone and Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. But the Reformation was always to a large degree, and perhaps more than we often consider or think, a renewed biblical emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's really what was uh, was lost and rediscovered in the Reformation by God's grace. So that the Reformers said the final authority for life and doctrine is not ultimately the church and church tradition, but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit. 
When asked the question, who is the representative or vicar of Christ on the earth? The reformers answered, it is not the Pope. It is the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14. How is the grace of God to be given and to be received? The reformers from the scripture said, not automatically by the sacraments, but by the working of the Holy Spirit in the use of those sacraments. Do you see how the Holy Spirit's place had been usurped or forgotten or denied? A Jesuit at the time of the Reformation named Edmund Campion was a a leader of the counter-Reformation in England, the response of the Roman Church to the Reformation. Listen, he believed that the fundamental difference between Romanism and Protestantism, what would you answer? The fundamental difference, he said, was the Protestant doctrine of the Holy Spirit. One historian says Romanism had encased the Holy Spirit in its numerous and necessary sacraments. So long as the priest uttered the right words, the spirit in the sacraments would do his work. But the Protestant Reformation had witnessed the recovery of the biblical doctrine of the spirit. He is the sovereign Lord who alone gives life. He cannot be contained. He blows where he wills. We may plant and we may water, but it is the Lord who makes things grow. He will be filled with the Spirit. And what do we see the effect of the work of the Holy Spirit in John's life from these verses? The work, by the work of the Holy Spirit, John would be great. How so? Well, first, he would be given a great privilege. He would be given a great privilege. He will be called great in the sight of the Lord. We looked at that generally this morning. How God sees our hearts. And we should think of what God thinks of us most of all. But this is specifically true of John. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what's the point there? Of all the Old Testament prophets, John was the greatest. Remember, there are pages in between Malachi and the Gospels in your Bible. And I said last time how my friend would tear that out of his Bible. To remind us that this is, this is fulfillment. This is promise and fulfillment. And here comes John. And he is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, looking ahead to the Christ to come. We have the blessing and privilege of seeing Christ having come in his life and his death and his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven. And in that sense, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. But what a great privilege John was given to be the forerunner of Christ, to be that last Old Testament prophet. He appears in the New Testament, but he's really the last of the Old Testament prophets before the coming of Messiah.
What did you go out to see, Jesus says in Matthew 11? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. What a great privilege John had. You know, sometimes we hear people say at different functions, it's a great privilege for me to introduce to you, and then someone is introduced. And often that is a great privilege. Several years ago, I was asked at a minister's conference to introduce Jeff Thomas. Uh, He was ordained the year I was born, I think. He had ministered in the same congregation in Wales for over 50 years. And they said, Matt, would you introduce him, please? What an honor that was. What an honor. But how much more? The one who was chosen to say of Christ in the flesh, Behold the Lamb of God. What an honor was placed on John to introduce Messiah Jesus. There's no greater person than Christ. And so no greater messenger than the forerunner of Christ, John. He had a great privilege. But he came, secondly, with a great purpose. Later on in Luke chapter 3, we read, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in and every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. That was speaking of John. And here in Luke chapter 1, look at his great purpose. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was his great purpose. He would come in the power of the Holy Spirit, but also in the power and spirit of Elijah. Now that, again, is an obvious reference to the end of Malachi that we've read. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. That's the prophecy that the Jews were holding on to. That's what they were waiting with in their minds. The Jews to this day set an empty chair at their religious gatherings for Elijah, hoping that Elijah would finally come and usher in Messiah. They're waiting for Elijah. Was this John? Was he Elijah? Well, on one hand, we say no. No. That's what he said, John 1.21. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. But listen to what Jesus would later say in Matthew 11 again. 
For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. That's how we're to understand Luke chapter 1. In light of that prophecy in Malachi 4. John comes in the power and spirit of Elijah. He is the Elijah who was to come. Now, just as a little side road, that is a very helpful example of something that we should remember in terms of the interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. Some people say that all of the prophecy of the Old Testament is to be taken completely literally. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but people come to me and sometimes and they say, do you take the Bible literally? And I have to see what they mean by that and who they are and who's asking. Because sometimes I say, yes, I do. And sometimes I say, no, I don't. What do they mean? What do we mean by this word word, literally? Do I take the Bible literally? Yes. The reformers really brought people back to a literal interpretation of the Bible. But by that, they meant interpreting the Bible as literature. Literally, so you interpret history as history and poetry as poetry and apocalyptic as apocalyptic and gospel as gospel. You treat it as literature, grammatical, historical interpretation. So I do take the Bible literally, but I don't take it literalistically. And maybe that's a nuance in words you say, but this is how we are to understand it. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Do you take that literally? I think we know that Jesus didn't because when Peter denied him, he didn't require Peter to cut out his tongue. It's dealing ruthlessly with sin. It's understanding we interpret that kind of hyperbolic language to make a strong point. But here, in this case, Jesus is teaching about John. He is the Elijah to come. It shows that some prophecy, at least, is not literalistic. John was the Elijah. And to wait, then, for the literal Elijah is not how Jesus interprets the Old Testament. Just keep that in mind, that example in mind. It doesn't answer everything. It's difficult. But keep that in mind as you think about how to handle Old Testament prophecy. But John would come in the power and spirit of Elijah. How was John like Elijah? Well, people have suggested many things. His dress, his clothing, his lifestyle. That he lived and ministered in a time of religious decline, that he was a man of zeal and boldness, that he fearlessly confronted even leaders of the land. But especially, especially he came in the power and spirit of Elijah in the focus of his ministry. Like all the prophets of old, he was calling people to repentance. He was calling people to repentance. In Luke chapter 3, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with, what? Repentance. Verse 16, Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. The word bring back is the word to turn or to return. 
It's used in Matthew 13 for this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. This is repentance. This is a change in the direction of your thinking and then of your life. He will bring back to the Lord their God many. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. That's language right out of Malachi. But what does that mean? People have suggested many things. Perhaps the initial thought that we all have is that this is some sort of restoration of families. Hearts of fathers to their children. Sin divides what should be together. That's a great principle in Scripture. You can think of it in many ways, but sin divides what should be together. Matthew Henry said, when we come home to God, we are nearer to each other. If we all come home to God, we're nearer to each other. Perhaps this is speaking about human family relationships being redeemed and elevated to the best family of all, the family of God. To know forever relationships with fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and mothers and sons and fathers and daughters and all together. That God in his grace would redeem families and the joy that would be, the joy that would be to have the heart of the parents reconciled to the hearts of the children and the hearts of children reconciled to their parents because both have been reconciled to the Lord. What a blessing. Some have said this may be speaking of the Jews of John's day being brought back to their forefathers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The hearts of the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. Others have said that it's perhaps the Jews of John's day turning to Christ and the apostles as sons of the Jewish nation. Salvation is of the Jews. Others suggest that this is perhaps speaking of the Gentiles being brought to the Jewish Messiah. Sometimes in the Old Testament, Gentiles being gathered in are referred to as sons and daughters. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around you. Assemble. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Nations coming, sons and daughters. Isaiah 63 and 4. But in any one of those cases, whatever one or all of them together, however we're to understand this, in any case, at the heart of it all is repentance. It's repentance. And I think... The Holy Spirit through Luke here, the angel's words to Zechariah point to this because it's not exactly the same as Malachi's prophecy. It begins the same, but it doesn't end the same way. To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. That's the great turning. That's the repentance. That's the reconciliation the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. 
Disobedient there, the word could be translated literally the unpersuaded, the unbelieving. Turned from unbelief to what? To the wisdom of God. That they would be wise unto eternal life. And this is the great turning that we all need. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul could speak of those Christians. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. John came to preach repentance. And why? Why? Because he was the great forerunner of Messiah. And we read it was in order... To make ready, this is the end of verse 17, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now there's so much there. This word make ready, sometimes it's used of a meal, Luke 22. Sometimes a bride who gets herself ready. Luke 12, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready, does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. To make ready and to prepare. A people prepared for the Lord. In the wilderness, Isaiah 40, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged place is a plain. To prepare the way for the Lord, that is a figurative expression It's drawn from the Eastern custom of sending people out before kings on their journeys, literally, to level the roads, to make them passable so that the king could come. And so there is a sense that the way for the Lord is prepared. But here, John's great ministry is to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That word prepared is used in many places in the Bible. It's used of Noah preparing the ark in view of the flood, in view of judgment, Noah prepared. It's used of of equipping or furnishing or getting a house ready. Our building here, there was lots of work to prepare it for use. But here, it's a prepared people. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I want to just close this sermon by just thinking of those words. Prepared for the Lord. In 2 Kings 20 we read, In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. And the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order. Remember that word prepared can be used for equipped or furnishing or getting a house ready? Well, here it's someone's life. Put your house in order because you are going to die. Are you prepared, Hezekiah? Are you prepared? This is the question that comes out of this text. In history, John was preparing a people for the coming of Christ. And that had historical significance, tremendous historical significance. 
but the principle applies to every age. Are you prepared for the Lord? We hear a lot about preppers in our day. They're prepared in all kinds of ways. Have you heard of a prepper? They're prepared in terms of food and fuel and firearms. They're all prepared. But you can be prepared in all those ways and still be totally unprepared. Because the Bible says it is destined unto man once to die and after that to face the judgment. Verse 17 speaks of the hearts of the fathers, their hearts or their souls. This is spiritual preparation. John was sent under God to prepare a people for the Savior, Jesus. And what's the best preparation for welcoming the Savior? It's conviction of sin. It's repentance. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If I'm healthy and Tara says, Matt, the doctor's at the door, I'll go, why? And that's sometimes what people do with the gospel. They hear about Jesus and they shrug their shoulders and they just say, why? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Do you see how it's conviction of sin that prepares for the Savior? The grace to know how much we need grace. The grace to know how much we need forgiveness from God in Christ. It's printed in your bulletins. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, until sin be better, bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That's the issue with with some people. Maybe it's the issue with you. You don't think very much of Christ or you need of Christ. Why? Because sin hasn't really become bitter to you. You haven't seen sin and your own sin as the offense that it is to the God who made you. When he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. It's this preaching of repentance that prepares a people for the Lord. Malachi 3, I will send my messenger, John, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord, Jesus, who you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. It's a call to repentance. In light of the holiness of God and the judgment of Christ, John was sent to prepare a people for the Lord, to call a people to say to them, are you ready to meet the Lord? Is your house in order? Are you prepared? Are you? Are you prepared for your day of death? 
Whenever that may come, and who knows, Proverbs 20, 27, 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. I'm not preaching this just to have something melodramatic to preach. It's just true. It's just true. You know, there's that old saying, prepare to meet your maker. Maybe in an old western or something. Oh, those are solemn words. Prepare to meet your maker. The Lord is the king and the lawgiver and the judge. And he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, and he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Are you prepared to stand before God? Am I prepared to stand before God? Being a preacher doesn't automatically prepare you to stand before God. John prepared for Christ's first coming. In our day, we have not only John, we have all the prophets and all the apostles, the whole Bible, Christ himself, in the scriptures, to prepare us for the second coming of Christ. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night when people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Martin Luther's 95 Theses, the first thesis was this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Watch and pray. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance unto life and saving faith in Christ, that's how to be ready. A believing repentance and a penitent faith. Listen to 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the same question, isn't it? Are you prepared? What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Are you prepared to meet the Lord? John was sent to, prepare, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. May that be true of us. And here's the wonderful thing. For those prepared by God's grace and ready to meet the Lord... Jesus has been preparing for his people. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am.